My name is Jennifer Brandell, and I'm the Third Coast Conference Manager for this year. And like, <laughs> wow, thanks. <laughs> I'd like to welcome you to this Third Coast Festival Conference session called Oscar Schmaska. And it's moderated by Ms. Gwen Maxi here, who will introduce you to all of our panelists. And you'll find out tonight, if you have an award ceremony ticket, who won what from the panel here. So please give Gwen a warm welcome. Thank you, thank you. Um, well, so one of the very first pieces that um, I did for public radio for national audience was a piece about the, actually about the Oscars. Uh, because the statues are made here in Chicago. And so I thought, oh, this might be a, of national interest. And um, I was fortunate in that uh, Ira Glass was my producer on the piece. And um, I was interviewing the guy. First, he took me on a tour of the factory. And there's like, um, you know, Emmys sitting on the shelf and Oscars sitting on the shelf. And it was just so weird. And we sat down in his office and I said, um, so, come on, don't tell me that you don't really know who won the Oscar. I mean, come on, Meryl Streep. And he said, who's that? I was like, come on, Meryl Streep. You know, she's up for Best Actress. He's like, I don't go to the movies. I'm like, what do you mean you don't go to the movies? You make the Oscars, you don't go to the movies? He goes, I get the spilkes. Now, for the few Jews, a few non-Jews in public radio who might be in the audience, um, you know, the spilkes is like, you're nervous. He goes, I can't sit still. I said, you, you make the Oscars, you don't go to the movies? He goes, no, no, no. He said, he said I said, oh, and he, then he said, um, the last movie I saw was um, uh, Space Wars. I said, Star Wars? He said, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, that was a really long time ago. And he's like, I, I just can't do it. So anyway. It's a long way of saying that we take our awards much more seriously than he does. Um, and we really try and, um, I mean, we bring 30 judges in from around the country. We have this year over 200 entries. Um, and just also so you know, I wanna make it clear that Third Coast has nothing to do with the judging. We bring everybody in, but we don't sit in. Uh, we just organize it. Um, and really, it's, uh, it's an amazing quality of work that we get, and we consider uh, these awards to be very, very well thought out, and um, we're just extremely proud of the work that's come in. Um, so, with no further ado, uh, I want to start with our first award winner. It's called Sucked Into Tunnels Beneath Las Vegas. Uh, we're going to bring the producer up in a minute, but first we're going to hear an excerpt from it. It's about five minutes long. We begin with a well-worn Vegas cliché, the sounds of slot machines on a busy casino floor. Tourists, blackjack tables, cocktail waitresses in impossibly tiny outfits, if you can afford the price of admission, an elevator could take you to more vice and excess upstairs, rooftop pools and lavish suites. But what if there were an elevator that went downward? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Let's just say there is. 
that you could descend below the sunken lounges, past kitchens and utility closets, through layers of concrete, until you reach the hidden matrix of tunnels beneath the strip, the storm drains. So yeah, now we're moving underneath Caesar's Palace, walking underneath kind of the main property there. My name is Matthew O'Brien. I've been exploring these storm drains for more than five years. I think I know these storm drains better than anyone who doesn't actually live in them. And I know the storm drain system probably, and this is nothing to brag about, but probably better than anyone else. There are over 300 miles of underground tunnels that crisscross beneath the city. In 2007, Matt O'Brien published a book about them. This is one of the kind of the creepier areas of the storm drain system. Very remote, wet, extremely dark. It's after 9 p.m. on a weekday night. We're wading through the muck and gravel that blankets this tunnel floor. We arrive at a chamber where the tunnel opens wide. The plump, almost illegible cursive of graffiti lettering covers the walls. Beautiful colors and designs. So this is... um, This is one of the underground art galleries that I discovered down in the storm drains. Basically, you walk in about a half mile in pitch dark, and you have artwork going down the walls that goes down for about a half mile. Ahead, the tunnel devours our flashlight beams. I keep hearing noises that make me stop and shine the light back in the other direction. There's always the butterflies. There's always that apprehension when you walk into a storm drain. Just because even if you've been in the drain the day before, that doesn't mean it's going to be the same environment You know, coming down the next day. I've even met people down in the drains who are really cool one day, and then you come back the next day and it's not cool. You know, All of a sudden, they'll tell you to, to screw off or kind of reach for their shank or their self-defense weapon. And, make it clear they don't want to talk to you today. So, Over the years, O'Brien has met more than 100 people who live in the tunnels. They're scattered in pockets across the city. We head away from the trickling water, down a side channel that stays dry most of the time. The ceiling gets lower, the corridor narrower, and the air becomes stale with the faint scent of body odor and human waste. We arrive at an encampment, a kind of cardboard lean-to. Yo, anyone here? Continuing on, we come upon two men sitting in the glow of candlelight. One of them, with a shag of greasy hair, is slumped on a couch. In front of him, on a makeshift coffee table, are a few hypodermic needles. The other man is better groomed. He's wearing a button-down shirt and a decent pair of slacks. To my relief, they both know Matt O'Brien. Hey, man, check this out. Thanks for the Thanksgiving thing. Brian and Steve haven't seen Matt since he was down here last Thanksgiving. We came back and there was... uh thanksgiving dinner on each of our beds big turkey and stuffing and it was was pretty good steve is the well-dressed one he's 42 grew up in las vegas and he makes his living at casinos around town doing what's known as silver mining which means he looks for credits left behind on slot machines okay i'll start at harris and depending on how i feel i'll go to either the venetian or the mirage a lot depends on how i look because those are two very hard places if you don't look right They'll, uh, they'll stop you and they'll watch you. It's always busy at Harris, so you're able to walk through the casino without you know, drawing much attention to yourself. To blend in, you need to dress the part. Steve has a rack of button-down shirts and slacks. He takes us to his quarters, cardboard walls enclosing a queen-size bed, a dresser, 
even a makeshift shower. Adam Burke. You're far, far away. <laughs> um, so, uh, this was on All Things Considered? Uh, day to day. Day to day. So, it's on kind of a newsy, featurey show, and you've combined sort of some news with a lot of beautiful production. You, you include yourself in there. Were you given instructions? Did you have anything that you had to fulfill for this piece, or was this your construction from start to finish? Uh, it was, I, I, I picked the story, and I, I went after it first, and then brought it to them. So that was one of the instances where I didn't get a lot of guidance. Um, I brought something that was ready, not ready to go, but fairly close to being ready to go mm -hmm. to them. It was mm -hmm. one of those rare instances where the, the editorial guidance was, was minimal, but also that was a show that was willing to take risks mm -hmm. with, with stories and um, give you ground. Like, you know, that story was eight minutes, so it was longer than normal. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you know when you started out that this was the way you wanted to start it with sort of starting on top and going down into the underworld of this world and the, and the contrast? Because, of course, this, this piece is about so much and, you know, the excess and the gloss of here and the underbelly of almost anything. It could be a metaphor. It could be, you know, literal. It could be so many things. Yeah. Did you know that that was the way you wanted to structure it going yeah, in? Yeah, you know, I, I was, I've been having these sort of informal conversations around the, the conference, and, you know, sometimes you kind of rack your brain for where the sound is in a piece and, um, you know, maybe even do a little bit of, a bit of inventing to try to, to give the piece some three-dimensional space. But with this one, um, uh, you know, and a lot of sound, a lot of ambient sound is sort of, you know, sort of womb-like or, you know, you kind of are in that space or it's wallpaper behind some narrative. And I, I knew that there was kind of a layered cake kind of phenomenon to Vegas. And um, I thought, okay, well, I'll just try, I'll see whether there's the, the vertical sound that could be depicted. And if, if I can do it, that's how I want to go in. Because I wanted to sneak up on the listeners. I didn't want, I wanted to take the listeners on a journey where they were really as I was, sort of out of control, you know, like I didn't, I, the guy that was leading me through these tunnels was the guide and it was really freaky going in there for me and um, I, wanted to, I wanted the listeners to have that feeling mm -hmm. as well as, you know, I mean, I think the way that Day to Day framed it was very NPR. They said, you know, they're, they're, you know homelessness is a problem in Vegas and you, you wouldn't <laughs> believe where you'd find it, you know, and I was just like, okay, I, I want some of the, the the unfurling to happen during the story. And I wanted to do it with sound if possible. So, it, you know, people have been asking me whether any of those sounds were artificial, but they, it was just a crossfade of a casino floor with the, the trippy subterranean sounds of the tunnels. And it's, you know, so it really had that elevator sound built into it. Did you have problem, I mean, uh, recording down there with uh, the echoes and the um, water and I, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure what it looked like. I have an idea, but yeah. I, I don't know if you were wading through water or like just like heart recording equipment. I mean, what did you, how did you, um, did you know what you, how do you were get, getting into what you wanted to bring in terms of recording equipment? And did you run into technical 
difficulties recording with such echoey chambers and stuff? Yeah, I mean, when you can't, when you can't see your source all the time, it's tough to know whether you're miking him well. You know? It was that dark? Yeah, yeah, it was pitch black. And there, so there were times where, and I wanted to experience that, so there was one point where I was like, let's just stop and talk <laughs> a little bit. And let's, let's, it's just, you know, uh, because he kept on like, you know how people do, you know, like you're trying to mic them and they're like moving their head around and you're like, yeah, you're yeah, doing yeah. this. Right, and, right. and so it, it can be really disorienting and you can get really crappy sound that way too. So um, at, at a few points I just had him stop. But then there's that one point where he, he turns away right when he says the word dark. He turns off mic, and so you get more of the, the sound. And, it, and when it happened, this is one of those things where when it happened, I went, shit, he's turning away from my mic again. You know, like, damn, you know? Um, but as it turned out, that was a kind of a, a three-dimensional space maker, you know? Um, the off mic, on mic is, is your friend in that kind of a situation because it, it helps the listener feel the space. So... Um, I, I carried one microphone. Um, it's a, a nice stereo microphone, and um, it's kind of one of those Swiss Army knife kind of microphones. So you can do close mics. You can get a stereo field. You can widen the stereo field or shrink it, depending. And so a, a lot of um, a lot of snapshots of, of various pieces of the tunnel went into that. So you know, when we got to the dripping water, I, I moved in and recorded it close, and then kind of stepped out and, and got a bunch of. I guess you'd call it B-roll or something, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so you could basically paint with the sound later. A lot of constructing of, of those kinds of environments is a mixture of, you know, kind of getting what happens and then oppor taking opportunities to get little snapshots that you think might be useful later. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't run into any technical problems, but you're always running into them, you know, like listening and going, is this the sound that I want? You know, and reacting to it. So I don't want to. Uh, so a couple of years ago, um, Adam was here because <clears throat> one of his short docs was p chosen, and it was about uh, a blind uh, <clears throat> going into a, a restaurant where it's also in the black. I mean, it's completely dark, and you're supposed to be uh, blinded. Uh, is this a thing? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're not the first person to ask say. that. Um, yeah, I I will be NPR's subterranean correspondent <laughs> when they when they hire one. Um, I, I just, there, darkness is a, is a space that, you know, radio is a phantasm type of medium, you know, um, you, 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 make, you make pictures up here in people's heads, and so when you're working in that kind of a space, it's, uh, it's sort of an, a radio natural if there's, if there's audio, and um, I guess it is a theme. <laughs> I, 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 I liked working in that environment. I, I liked knowing that if I could capture people's sense of what it's like to be underground and, and essentially powerless in this environment that's been sort of partially taken over by um, human beings that are sort of living at odds with the civilization ab above, um, uh, there's a there's a visual quality to that that was possible in radio in that weird way that radio is visual. I think I just sort of said a bunch of nonsense, but... No, no, no. Um, <laughs> um, how did you find out about this guy and, uh, the, t and the tunnels? That was, was the most book? ordinary part. I, um, one of my friends at Nevada Public Radio, um, I had been coming to town doing way more ordinary stories, and, and she handed me this book, and she said, this this book is an interesting book. There might be a radio story in there. And as soon as I saw it, I mean, it, it just the cover, looking at the cover, and I, I heard the story, you know, it was, um, again, like, 
a lot of times you go into a story and you don't, you have a, a platonic ideal and then what you end up with is very, very far from what you thought you were gonna get and this one kind of manifested itself. You know, I knew I wanted that vertic verticality, I knew I wanted to go in there and, and get some subterranean sounds, I knew I wanted to talk to the people that were living there and, and all of those things paid off. So um, he was my guide and uh, the book was handed to me. It's hmm. one of those like, in your lap sort of things, nice. you know, like didn't have to really scrap for that one at all. Um, and, and how scary was it for you to go down there? I mean, if, if it was pitch black and you, I mean, you said at one point, you know, to my relief. Um, so it sounded like you were, it was just kind of kept you off kilter and it, as it would anybody who was down there with no lights and you don't know who's there and you don't know how friendly they're going to be and that kind of thing. Um, it, it was super freaky, <laughs> like really hard, really, I was really nervous. Um, the thing is this guy, Matt O'Brien, um, he's got this sort of slightly sort of paramilitary thing that he's, he's into where he like, he straps on the boots and he's got the baton and he's got the little like tight knit cap and the, the sort of the, the black pants and the tight knit black shirt. And, uh, so he's doing this thing where he's kind of gearing up and, which, of course, only makes the reporter more nervous, oh, yeah. right? And he, I was like, well, he's like, here, here's a flashlight. It's one of those big sort of nightstick-style <laughs> flashlights. And he's like, and if you need that, you know, that could, that could be a way you could beat somebody off. I, that actually didn't really come off sounding like I wanted it to, but um, you beat somebody back. <laughs> um, and, and so, and, and I was like, I, I was like, I'm going to have to actually defend myself down here. And it's really freaked out going in, you know, especially the first time. I went down there several times, but the first time it was frightening. And, and you really do, as you know, the, it's like one of those things where the rear view mirror is really close and the, it's sort of a, you know, what's behind you is disappearing really quickly. You have no way of verifying who's back there. You hear noises around you, especially if you have a stereo mic on and headphones on. <laughs> you, you know, you're like, yeah, it's like, here, put these, uh, put these blinders on, you know, and jump into this freaky situation. It was like that, you know. Um, but, but he also knows his way around, and you, you learn to... Greg, Greg Warner just did a, a piece, uh, I did a, a session earlier about um, kind of giving, ceding some control to translators mm -hmm. and how you have to do that in, in situations. And Matt O'Brien was my translator. You know, he, he was, he was my, my diplomat into that world, and I had to trust him a lot. But, you know, he's, he's an imposing guy, and... He had a, a giant baton that he carried and thought, okay. He didn't have to use it, though. No, I mean, that's the thing. I, I, think, I think the situation was much more harmless than, you know, part of it is your imagination, you yeah, know? Um, especially in the dark. Yeah, but these guys are, a lot of these guys who live down there are living down there because they are, you know, sort of, uh, some of them have mental health issues, some of them have, have addiction issues, and so there is an unpredictable quality to being down there. And you know, not knowing what these guys were thinking or what they, what they might want from us um, provided tension for the piece, but it also was real. Was there anything that you really wanted to include in the piece but you couldn't because of time constraints, like anything on the cutting room floor that, yeah, that was really um, great? Yeah, there was this whole um, kind of side narrative. Steve, the guy who sort of lives in these two worlds, you know, he sort of lives among the casino tourists, you know, while he's making his living, and then he lives underground. Um, when I returned the second time, he had, um, he had a girlfriend, and he was talking about it, and he was like, yeah, I've got a girlfriend now. And I was like, really? 
said, yeah, um, she's going to culinary school. And I was like, wow, and living down here with you. And he said, yeah. And he started, he started talking about her a lot, and he said, yeah, you know, she hasn't lived here all her life. She lived in Mallorca. And I was like, Mallorca, yeah. And, I, and, and he said, yeah, see, there's, there's a map over there. And like, all of a sudden, we're looking on the side of this tunnel wall at this map of, of Mallorca. I mean, I'm running tape the whole time, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, he's like, yeah, it's this island, and she lived right there, and he's got this little sort of circle with a dot, and he's like, Mallorca, I'm thinking someday we'll go there. And I was like, I'm thinking probably not, Steve, but, um, you know, he, just the idea that there was this whole sort of other story, I thought, okay, should I sort of push this story aside and follow Steve and Catherine? And, um, because the idea that she was also living in another world as well, going to culinary school and then coming home to the tunnel, uh, was, it, it seemed like it could be juicy enough to be a radio story oh, in itself. Yeah. And it, it may still be. Actually, Steve and Catherine finally made it out of the tunnels and they're now living in like halfway housing. And, um, so I'm, and I live in Las Vegas now. I got sucked into Las Vegas. I wasn't living there when I did this piece, so I can, I can do more with them. Well, I'm done. We have to move on, but I have one last question. I am so curious. How did they get like a queen size bed down there? They are incredibly, and that's the other thing. There's like the freaky part, and then there's the like, humans will do whatever they have to do to make a living kind of part of the story. There's a human ingenuity part of it. And I could not believe the quantity and yeah. quality of stuff that they had down right. there. I mean, it literally is like if you were to take somebody's living quarters and just go, Clunk, you know. Yeah, yeah. Only in this particular case, they trucked it all in. They had bicycles, shopping carts. They're wheeling stuff around. I mean, they're they're people on the move, you know. Wow. I mean, human beings do remarkable things, and uh, this was really a remarkable scene in that way. You know, they had good stuff. Yeah. They knew where to get it. That's wild. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Sure. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to keep everybody up here, and at the end of the session, we can ask everybody, you open the floor to questions, and we'll talk amongst ourselves. Um, all right, we're going to move to our next cut. Um, this uh, requires a little bit of a, a lead-in. Um, this is Willie McGee in the Traveling Electric Chair. Um, and the story behind this is that in May of 1951 in Mississippi, uh, people gathered to witness the execution of Willie McGee. He was convicted of raping a white woman. Um, his case went through three trials. It garnered a lot of attention from celebrities and, and uh, common people alike. Um, William Faulkner, Paul Robeson, Albert Einstein. Um, but despite the publicity, uh, he was found guilty of the crime and he was executed and then pretty much his story was forgotten to the history books and not even that. Um, 60 years later, uh, McGee's granddaughter, Bridget McGee, and Joe Richmond teamed up to tell his story, well, f to investigate and then tell his story. Um, and their story's called the Willie McGee and the Traveling Electric Chair. We're going to bring them up, but first we're going to hear an excerpt of the piece. I, I should say, um, this piece, the, the excerpt, the beginning of the excerpt comes in right after we hear 
a very intense archival piece of tape of the commentators witnessing his execution. Willie McGee's body was uh, taken to Pete Christian's funeral home, and my mother and father took me over there. And I knew what I was going there for, you know. It was like a business that had to be taken care of. And you go in there and you view the body. And I did not close my eyes. I did not close my eyes because that was a specific message that my daddy wanted me to get. And that message was, you do not get connected with white girls. You see what happened to Willie McGee. And I understood that. And, uh, you know, my daddy let me see it long enough to get the message and then took me back home. After his execution, everybody pretty well washed their hands. That was the end of it. They said, we've suffered. The city has suffered. We're glad it's over. Let's forget it. The blacks and whites didn't talk about it between them. Even today, none of the blacks I've had that helped me through the years, we never mentioned it. They believed he was innocent, and the whites believed he was guilty. Simple as that. It's always going to be that way. And uh, it was just not a good thing to argue about it. There's one more person I really need to speak with. I am going now to meet John Schwartzfeger. His dad prosecuted my grandfather back in 1951. He was the one who basically sent my grandfather to the lecture chair. So we came up to his house and I was very nervous. And he opened up the door and he, him and his wife. So nice to meet you. And they looked at me and he hugged me. Y'all just go ahead and make yourself comfortable. Well, I, I remember the night of the execution very well. We were all standing in the kitchen, and uh, my father reached up in the cabinet and got a pint of uh, bourbon, and he took the fifth of whiskey, hid it inside his coat, and when he got to the courthouse, he told the sheriff that he wanted to see Willie McGee alone in a room, just the two of them, and they sat and they talked while Mr. McGee drank the whiskey, and my father asked him, said, uh, did you or did you not rape Mrs. Hawkins? Were you guilty? And uh, he got his answer. And my father never divulged it to anyone else, and I'm not going to divulge it now. I wouldn't want you to go against your father's wishes but I still want to know as much history as I can about my grandfather. I'm not looking for him to be wrong, nor I'm trying to find out if he was right, but it sure would make me feel better to know. I, I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying, but we have to take into consideration there was a pint of bourbon involved I mean, this man was facing death in a matter of an hour or so. And, and what a person would say at that time, especially if they had been drinking, I just don't think it's fair to repeat them. But I also know that a drunk speaks a sober mind. And at that point in time, what did he have to lose anyway? I'd, I wish I wouldn't have told you. Now, I, mean, I really do, because 
as much as I know that everybody wants me to say he said yes, he did it, or no, he didn't do it, is I can't say that. I'm not going to say that. To keep rehashing something that happened 60 years ago can't possibly bring about any good now. But me as a granddaughter, I'm here to get information because there's another generation ahead of me that carries a McGee name now, and they don't even know any of the history of what happened. So that's that's my place. Bridget, I just, I certainly have a great deal of compassion for your family. I mean, none of y'all did anything. I'll give you your answer because I think you're entitled to it. But I'm going to do it for you. Off the record, alone. Is that fair enough? That's fair. All right. Joe Richmond, Bridget McGee, come. So, while you're getting settled, I just have to, I've heard the piece numerous times now, and every time, and it's a long piece, um, but every time I hear that section, I'm just floored by the incredible poise that you had at that moment and patience that you had with this guy because I think as listeners, at least I felt like I just wanted to wring his neck when he said, well, I'm just not going to tell you. I I, I mean, you know, I think as a listener, you're like jumping out of your chair and you're so uh, poised and speak so well, like, well, you know, and you're like just milking him until you get what you want. And I'm just so well, in awe, because I couldn't do it, but also just wondering what was going through your head at that point that you could be so collected and so calm at this, like, apex of your journey? Um, Just what you said, I wanted to, no. (laughs) At that time, I was tired, probably, and um, we traveled a long time going back and forth to Mississippi, Mm -hmm. so he probably got me at a good time where I was Mellow? Just mellowed out. <laughs> uh, well, I, I just thought that was incredible. And also just that, like, you went at him once, said no. You went at him again, said no, again. And finally you got it. Um, I, 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 just, I just thought that was like a stroke of genius. I don't know whether you were really, you know, calculating it that way in your head or it just came, came to you sort of naturally, but... Um, you know, to to kind of pour honey all over the guy instead of just, um, and 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 then as a producer, Joe. I mean, this is a really pivotal part of the piece. Um, and as a producer, you just heard that he would tell Bridget the answer, but that you couldn't tell the listeners at this point. So, we're, what was going through your mind? Were you thinking, oh, yes. Oh, what shit. am I going to do? Yeah. What yeah. were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we were all, um, there actually, there were four of us in the room. Samara, a co-producer in the story, and Harold, Bridget's husband, and we were all in the room. And when, when he said that, um, yeah, I was like, no, don't, you know, don't turn the tape, don't turn the tape recorder off. But um, I did also, not too long after, realize that there was this kind of, this magic of this off, off-stage event 
Um, and the backstory of what happens later is, um, is sort of interesting too, because we were going to do the story with this mystery, and we kind of loved it, but also it's very unsatisfying too. And then it turns out that what he told us off the record, he had also told to an author who was going to publish it, and he felt, although John Schwartzfeger felt that was off the record too, the author was going to have him publishing it, which then freed us up, and we went back to him and said, look, it's going to be out there. So he gave you us permission. You found this out, or he told you that? We found this out. You just found that out on your own? Yeah, and um, so we were able to go back to him and say, look, this has got to be part of our story, which kind of gave us the best of both worlds, actually. It let us have this like mystery, yeah. and then at the end of the story, Bridges is able to talk about what he said, which it turns out isn't as satisfying as you think it's going to be. The right. words are still very uh, murky and ambiguous, but, um, but at least it does let us kind of yeah, get to that. Yeah, gives you some sense of relief. Um, so how did, let's just back up a little bit. Um, how did you guys come together to collaborate on this subject? What was it about Joe? I know that there were other people that wanted to, at some point, um, work with you and you were, if I remember correctly, from the Filmos Festival, um, you were not sure who and how to tell your story, and, 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 but you guys teamed up. How did that happen originally? Well, I'll, just, I'll start from our point of view, which is um, Samara found, the, found this story, and we were interested in doing it because of this, mostly because of this, well, this interesting chapter of history, but also this execution tape, which is just this remarkable, bizarre, uh, radio broadcast of the execution from the courthouse steps because he was executed in this traveling electric chair that went from courthouse to courthouse and so the the radio station broadcast from the courthouse steps and it was um, and by a stroke of chance someone happened to re in a neighboring town put the microphone up to the radio and recorded it and then kept this recording until about four years ago when it appeared in the Hattiesburg Mississippi archive so we had this tape, and we were just looking for people who had some real-life blood connection to the story, family members, whatever. And Samara found Bridget, who luckily happened to be launching her own investigation, her own personal investigation, into because you didn't even know anything about your grandfather. Nothing right. at all. So I, I know there was some serendipity in the timing, but what was it about Joe that made you think, he's worthy, you know? Well, you didn't know him from Adam, right? No, I did not. Um, I actually didn't meet Joe first. I met Samara first. Oh, okay. Yes. What was it about Samara, then? <laughs> Probably her emails. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually um, met another gentleman that was from Mississippi, and he had been doing some articles in the newspaper, and um, somehow he got a hold of me. I don't know, remember how we touch based. And um, he told me about Samara. And he actually introduced me to Samara email-wise. And from there, we, we spoke and were going back and forth email. And I kind of told her what I was doing. And she told me what her and Joe wanted to do and that they were in interested in the story. And I just felt comfortable with her, mm -hmm. just you know, from emails. Mm -hmm. And now the scope of the story is so big. Um, you've got you know, the, the historical facts. You've got Bridget's quest to find out about our family history. You've got um, present day stuff. You've got archival stuff. Um, it's just a really big story. And I'm just curious, when you guys thought about <clears throat> how to start structuring it and framing it, how did you figure out where you wanted to start, where you wanted to build to, and how you wanted to end? Like, what part of the story you really wanted to explore? 
that for? It's kind of for Joe, but it's for both of you, actually. Well, I think we did kind of have a sense all along that this is going to be mostly about Bridget going to Mississippi for the first time and trying to investigate the story. So we knew it was going to be that kind of a journey, although we, yeah, so that, that was pretty clear. I, I mean, there were a lot of ways this story could have gone in chapters, yeah. and I think we, I think it, you know, we, at Radio Diaries, we do a lot of history stories, a lot of archival tape and stuff, and we do these diaries, and for this, it was kind of this experimental kind of marriage of the two, um, which was exciting, but also just really hard to have two kind of parallel narratives, and how are we going to fit those together? It was actually a really hard one to, uh, to produce and structure. Mm -hmm. How long did you guys work on this story, all told? And how many trips? I mean, you did a lot of the investigative work together, right? Yeah, the, the, it was really just one long trip to Mississippi that we did for most of the, like, that, the reporting, and then we kind of did a lot of recording with Bridget narration and stuff after that. Um, but that was back July of 2009, and then it aired in May 2010. So it was a, not that we were working on it all that time, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a long period of time. So how did you guys find the collaboration? I mean, were there times when you <laughs> disagreed with each other about how to put it together? Uh, and I'll, how I'll did you work you, that out? That one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was a disagreement. There was times when I was like, oh, my God, are you going to ask me this question again? Um, there was also a time when we were traveling, um, probably one of my rememberable moments. <laughs> we were traveling from um, New Orleans to Mississippi, and he was taping me from the back seat. <laughs> I was in the front seat. And then he said, well, describe what's around you. And I'm like, there's nothing but trees. <laughs> then he stopped me at the sign and made me get out of the car and say, welcome to Mississippi about 20 times. <laughs> I don't think we used any of those either. <laughs> so by the 20th time, I'm like, welcome to Mississippi. <laughs> you know? So there was a moment where he just kept saying, okay, repeat this, repeat that. And to me, I'm just, let me just say this, you know, but he's such an expertise in this. And yeah. um, he have you say it over 20 times and I didn't think taping would be that intense. To, <laughs> um, it was already bad enough. I'm traveling to Mississippi and I'm not knowing what to expect. And he's like putting his mic in my <laughs> face everywhere we go. And anything I was doing, he had a mic in my face. I'm breathing, Joe. <laughs> you know, so. Luckily, we, you know. But when, you're breathing so well. Yeah. <laughs> when when we first went down there, Bridget, when we were meeting Mississippi, and Bridget said, "You know, I'm going to bring my husband Harold." And I was like, "Oh, this is just going to be another person." And then the is this going to be a weird dynamic? And then we met Harold, and quickly it turned that Harold, luckily, was our ally because he was not only was he a lot of fun but he was the one who was come on Bridget you got to record come on <laughs> got the table. and Bridget did some a lot of diary recording as well so he was kind of our field engineer um, in in Las Vegas coincidentally where, where they live oh, really? oh, okay um, so what kind of uh, um, I assume there was tons that you had to leave out um, and I'm going to ask the same question. Uh, what kind of nuggets did you have to leave out that you would have put in if you had five more minutes or, or what have you? I mean, there are a lot of little things and mm -hmm. wonderful moments, but there's this whole chapter of the story that is fascinating that we is not in, mostly because of time, because mm -hmm. we had a, a, on all things considered, it had to be 20, 22, 23 minutes. 
but also it was just a, really hard to get this in, which is the, the story, which you feel very strongly about, of William McGee's wife, once he went into, w once he was arrested and, and, um, and this campaign started, William McGee's wife went around the country as a sort of advocate and was brought as this kind of, you know, symbol of his case. And uh, the problem is he, she wasn't really his wife. And people, oh. a lot of people who were involved with the case didn't, it's still, in fact, if you go through a lot of historian, you know, history books and chapters that have been written about this, they don't even know this. And so that's been a really important thing that it, we, we, we investigated on the website, but it wasn't really part of the story. Oh, how you, tempting, you know, yeah. you know to, to have to leave that out. I mean, not, I mean, how frustrating to have to leave that out, but you just didn't have the time. Did, um, did you, well, I'm sure the response was huge to the piece. Um, how, what kind of splash did it make? Um, we, uh, I mean, it was, we were fortunate, I don't know if Tony is here, but we first, we were fortunate to get it on BBC World Service. So that was great. So he was just giving you the list of all the countries that aired, which is, a you know, to think about it, Aaron, and Ghana, Nigeria, Pakistan is a very oh, bizarre awesome. thing. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, no, we wow. got we got good response. So, Bridget, like throughout this process, did you feel? I mean, uh, do you feel like you got what you started out trying to get in terms of the answers and the things that you can pass down to your children and their children? And I mean, did you feel like the quest came to a, a resting place for you? Well, I, I do appreciate all the information that I have gotten um, as far as certain things about my grandfather, but I still was um, a little not at peace with the answer that I got mm -hmm. from John Schwarzenegger, because mm -hmm. I think he kind of riddled around it. Mm -hmm. um, Joe talked about a moment of, of knowing about my grandmother that wasn't actually my grandmother portraying my grandmother. That part I did want to include, but there was some conversation that me and John Schwarzenegger had off record also that I was thinking, okay, I would love to include this information in the diary, you know, that he talked to me about some things that his dad would go through yeah. at the time of um, oh, sure. the anniversary of my grandfather's execution. Those were several things I thought um, would have been nice to have also in the radio diary. As far as history for um, my children and my nephews and my brother who is actually um, the father of the ones that carry the McGee name. I am McGee Robinson mm -hmm. because I'm married, but those guys that carry it, I do think I got some information that will be, um, I say, suitable for them at this moment in time. But no, I don't think I'm ready to put the baby to rest yet. I still have some more things I need to be you're doing with it. You're still gonna, you're gonna investigate further or talk to yes. more people? Yes. And are you gonna produce any kind of work out of that, do you think? Well, or is it just I'm a I'm looking at uh, a few things. Um, of course, my, my book and um, um, several things that um, I wanna do with the story that I think needs to be out there. That's a history that needs to be known. And, um, Has Hollywood sure. come knocking yet? Well, yeah, a couple of Hollywoods have come knocking. So. <laughs> Figure. Um, all right. Well, there, we there was. Let me just add one thing that um, there was something about this story in radio, though, that because it is such a, the truth of it is so unknowable and so murky and sort of um, you know no way to get at it really. Um, but there is something about radio that 
does a good job with sort of emotional truth, you know, the stuff between the lines or between the words and all that. And I think that, that for that reason, this was a really, just in terms of the figuring out the history of it, um, something about having this on radio that I think worked. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, believe me, I'm sure Hollywood will not sound as good. Um, all right, well, we're going to move on uh, to our next award winner. Uh, it's called The Loneliness of the Goalkeeper. Um, and we're going to hear an excerpt and then bring our producer up to join us. Uh, this is actually the last five minutes or so of the piece. And you should know uh, this is a long, uh, a long piece by our standards. And um, it's really a... Um, uh, ostensibly, it's about uh, being a goalkeeper on a soccer team uh, and what that entails, but, uh, but it's also just about um, uh, feeling isolated. And the, the part of us all that feels isolated at some point or another and alone within, within a crowd. So let's listen. And just deflected that one. It was going right for the top corner there all the way, and it was a lovely save by Sidler. That was a grand shot, the grand save. When I see a great goal, it seems to me an incomplete experience. You should have a great shot followed by a great save to be a, a full, complete and rounded experience. I don't expect people to understand that. In fact, I hope people don't understand it. Being misunderstood is part of the goalkeeper's stock in trade. You wouldn't be a goalkeeper unless you wanted to be misunderstood. How can I not be obsessed with failure? If I succeed, what have I done? What have I created? Nothing. Even the poorest goals go into the record books. Great saves are forgotten. This could be a Panthers goal. So I love your eternal optimism. Yeah. You have the to, Panthers yeah. get somewhere near the 18-yard box and Jem's thinking it could be a goal. So that's 4-0 at half-time. He's in tears. The Preston Panthers keepers in tears. Poor lad. The gloves are off. He's crying. Poor boy's crying. It's under 16's football on a Sunday morning. Can you hear that? I tell you what it is the great goalkeepers. When all else fails, those guys in front of you, those ten guys, need to look round and say, the goalie will save us. Now that's the difference once you acquire greatness, true greatness. And very few goalkeepers really acquire that, that aura about them. And one of the greatest, Gary Sprague. Brilliant keeper. But you know what? And this just about sums it up. It doesn't matter that he kept hundreds of clean sheets. Forget the cup and championship successes, never mind that he saved the blushes of countless dodgy defenders, and there are plenty of dodgy defenders. The thing that defines Gary Sprague, the loneliest of all lonely keepers, is the goal he scored against himself in 1967. And he's not even Scottish. Gone yourself, Gary, son. We were playing at Liverpool one day, and uh, three minutes before half-time, cross came across, I caught the ball. Terry Cooper was on the left wing, he shouted to throw it to him. Jesse was going to throw it to him, I seen Ian Callaghan run to him, so I changed my mind. I've done it millions of times, just brought the ball back to my chest, but on this occasion, I missed my chest and went over my shoulder and, and right in front of the cop. 
And just as I was walking off, the, the DJ says, we dedicate this record to Gary. Des O'Connor just made this record, Careless Hands. I let my heart fall into careless hands. David Dunn gets the return ball from Derbyshire, lets the short go, and it's gone through Leyland's hands and into the net. What a howler from Jens Leyland. Here come Estonia, and the shot driven in, and Robertson spills it, for goodness sake, he's a neck for Bradshaw's shot from 25 yards, and Carson was nowhere near it. Terrible fumble by the Dolphins. That's the second half about to start, and that's um, the Preston Panthers keeper walking back to his goal alone. Alone and four goals down. Do you know what? I wish I could say to you that I didn't know how that felt. I know how that feels. I remember now why I stopped being a goalkeeper. That can hold on to love. Adam Fowler. So um, I, I'm sure you noticed that we, we went from archival tape and stories to a live verite um, uh, calling of an under-16 goalkeeper who was having a miserable day. Um, and uh, I, I guess we should explain exactly how it works, that you had a presenter, that you were the producer, and what the difference is and how this story came about. Well, the, the, the idea for the story um, came from Hardeep, who's the presenter, mm-hmm. uh, Hardeep Singh Kohli. Um, he presented us with the idea and, to a certain extent, let me run with it. And so it became more... It's funny, the programme... It's funny hearing the end of it again. The programme starts as a sports programme and finishes reasonably as a sports programme, but there's a progression all the way through it. It gets less and less about sport. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we can only pay a small sure, part. So. Sure, sure. It comes back round to sport at the end, but it's a lot to do with about loneliness. Um, and so I ran with that more than Hardeep was expecting. And he loved what I did with that. But it was his idea, and he was the former goalkeeper in his youth. Um, and he suggested one or two of the people we spoke to. And we kind of just collaborated. And to a large extent, he let me do the non-sport stuff, if you like. I know nothing about sport at all. <laughs> well, that's the thing, is from the very beginning, I mean, we hear like mariachi band, I think, in the beginning, a Mexican kind of sounding music. Mm, sure, um, sure, sure. We hear th- this sort of lush thing at the end. There's tons of, uh, of music in here that really directs the piece in a, in a light-hearted, humorous direction. Sure. Um, but still, at the heart of it is, an, is the a concept of really is loneliness. And, it, and if I feel like there's something about um, this story that is quite universal, and I'm wondering if you can kind of sure. narrow in on exactly what sure. that is. No, no, absolutely. It was, it, there's a progression all the way through it, and one of the, and, and each thing kind of suggested the next. It was quite an easy progression to, to, to make. And one of them was, we got a chap called Simon Barnes, who's the main sports 
feature writer for the London Times, and uh, he was the chap whose voice you heard first talking about the, the perfect combination of, of, of short and save. And he had this list of Renaissance goalkeepers that he talked about. That's what he, he called them. It included Pope John Paul II, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Vladimir Nabokov. And all, each one, he mentioned something about their childhood. Uh, you know, Nabokov's trauma about having to leave Russia in the revolution. Uh, che Guevara's asthma as a child meant he had to be in, go in, in goal. So I made this connection. Was there something to do with childhood trauma? And, and being a goalkeeper. And being a goalkeeper. And Simon Barnes ran with that and said, yes, there is something about feeling that you are different from the rest. So that was an element. And there's also the, actually the physical nature of being a goalkeeper, a soccer goalkeeper, is that you watch the back of your team, the backs of your team. If you make a mistake, what happens? Your team walk away from you to yeah. the center circle. Um, you wear a different kit from them. Um, different jersey. Different, yeah. Just for those who <laughs> need a translation. Yeah, we need that uh, lot <laughs> found in translation. Um, but so there is something very lonely. Two, two, two different dialects. There is something very lonely about being a goalkeeper because of those sporting things. But is it something that draws you to being a goalkeeper in the first place? Now, which came first, the chicken sure, or the Sure, sure, sure. But ball. also, it does speak universally to feeling lonely and rejected and having made a really big mistake, even though it wasn't your fault. And that's something that speaks to all of us. Well, you also have to be able to tolerate uh, being blamed, because as sure. they, somebody points out sure. in the piece, you pay 89 minutes brilliantly, sure. Sure. and one minute of screwing up, or you know, 10 seconds, five seconds, two seconds, sure. and boom, that's all you're remembered for. No, absolutely. And, and then you go back, and you you know, happens again. Sure, and that point that was made on tape, I think uh, that you can make a brilliant save. Nobody remembers that. It's not in the record books. Um, right. But you make a mistake. You know, right. like, unlike the striker who scores a goal, everybody thinks he's the hero. Yeah. You go from, I, I can't remember if that was on the tape or, or not, but at some point, there's the point about the, the striker is, can be the hero. Right. The goalkeeper just does his job, and if he does his job, he's just done his job. Yeah, right. he, he, but right. he's the villain if he doesn't do his job. Right, right. So, that's all. Um, so how much latitude do you have in, uh, in injecting humor into your piece? I mean, are you in a position where you can kind of draw up your own... Sure. Roadmap for any of sure. the pieces you produce? Sure, I've been, I've been doing it a fair amount of time and I've got a good relationship with the in Ladbrook Productions as the, the independent, independent production company we work through mostly. And they just trust me. And Radio 4, I've got, uh, BBC Radio 4, I've got a good enough relationship with. I hope that they, 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 they've liked what I've done for long enough. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of editorial control in my hands. And also, the presenter's a very funny chap, so his, his, his humour comes through everything. And you don't have to edit that in. It's just in everything he does. So I've got that. Uh, also, I wrote a script for him, which he then played Riffed with. Riffed on. Riffed on. Uh, so I got inside his head, and I hope I wrote some funny stuff myself. But uh -huh. And then, and also, uh, did you know, uh, again, going in, that this was the way you wanted it to be, that it was going to be humorous, lighthearted, that... Um, sure. You said before that you know it was sort of that one thing was uh, 
calling. I mean, things were being suggested to you sure. all the time. Yeah, yeah. This the is a program that almost made itself. Yeah, explain that. Well, it, it really felt, I mean, it, there's very few elements. The, the last goalkeeper, Gary Sprake, is on archive. You heard a lot of other football archive. Uh, you've got the location stuff with the football, Sunday afternoon football. You've got one studio interview. You've got another location interview and not much else apart from the music and the script. So it was a very simple program in its elements. It was just mixing it together was complicated, but it, it's mm -hmm. a, and so I think, and each element just suggested something else. Somebody, at the beginning, the goalkeeper that we have running through it, the former goalkeeper, uh, is asked a question by the presenter, how did you stay focused? You, he, he played for Arsenal, who were one of the biggest teams at the time. And uh, he had nothing to do for most of the match. His team was so good. And Hardeep asks, Hardeep Sankole, the presenter, asks, how did you stay focused? And Bob Wilson just said, well, do you remember that series, The Bionic Man? And Hardeep said, yeah. Well, do you remember Steve Austin, that music? And he could do anything from any distance. I just imagine if a player had the ball, even if they were way down the other end of the park, at any moment they could turn around and fire a shot into my goal. At which point, you know, a producer gets that kind of nudge. You think straight to the archive, where's the music from the bionic man? So you bring that up. Um, it's Zach Perlman, who was the violinist that you heard in the, in the, in the piece. He was on archive saying, uh, I used to play in goal when I was a kid because I had polio. So I couldn't run around. Um, you've got to use a bit of it, Zach Perlman playing the violin. So that, oh, absolutely. And so the archive and the music, just I mean, a bit of football action, high action. So it's always a goal scene, high action bit, bit you're using by definition. Use that with any music you like. It sounds fantastic. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, so it's a gift. So you've got that, and there were just some instinctual things at the end of the Bionic Man music. I faded it down very, very, very slowly. I wanted to hear something else. I wanted to hear location noises, atmos. And I didn't know, want to know what it was. I just wanted you to hear the sounds for a while. And that's the other thing. Your, your presenter um, is a really, was a really good on-the-spot reporter. I mean, Absolutely. he is very funny, and yeah. he's very, uh, uh, his observations are very dry. and. Uh, he's looking at this goalkeeper who's what, 12 or 13, sure. and he's like, sure. yeah, as you heard, he's crying, he's crying. Well, he looks a little lardy to me, you know. Uh, he's, he just says the funniest things, and that's real, that's a real gem. I don't know how many of him you have, but. Nothing was scripted on location. There's very little script in the whole program. It's half an hour long, and there's about eight places where there's links, and about six of those are about eight words long. Hmm. Uh, the longest links were in the bit that you heard. And finally, oh, sorry, links, scripts, scripts, studio recorded script. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, like printed script. Yeah. Yeah, and funnily enough, I went to. He didn't come into the studio. He said, "Can we do these in my house? Because I'm so busy." And I said, "Fine. I could throw a few soft furnishings around, bring the recording gear and the good mic, and." Uh, that we find. Arrived at his house, he lives in central London in this loft apartment which has no dividing walls and is oh. all pine floors and wooden walls. And, a lot of echoes. Ah, the only place we could find was his bedroom. We were sitting in his bed together and it was still very echoey so I had to hide it with a lot of atmos of, of different things. So. Did you put a blanket over him or what did you do? Uh, well, we did a bit of that but, uh, <laughs> but it, I just got away with it. But there's very few written links in it. 
scripts in it. Uh, it's all, all, most of his stuff is on location and it wasn't scripted at all. He just came out with it. It also sounds though that you and he have like s sensibilities in mm. that you seeing this humor in the situation, but sure. also the kind of seriousness of it at Absolutely. the same time. Absolutely. And, like he's, and there's a poignancy. Yeah. And even for people who know nothing about sport, myself included, <laughs> you get the poignancy. And there's a central, there's a kind of central part of the program, which is one long ballad sung by a poet that we, we asked to, we commissioned a poem, and the chap came along, um, Murray Lachlan Young is his, his name, and instead of writing a poem, he wrote a ballad, and he sang it in the studio. Yes. And you can hear the surprise in Hardeep's voice when he says, so you surprised me, you brought a ballad. And he says, yeah, sure, it's about this and about that. And they talk it through a bit as by way of introduction. And, and, and then he gets up to start singing, and Hardeep says, you're going to sing it. He said, yeah. He said, wow. And then he sings it. And that is, it's all sport. It's purely sport that when it's about a goal that in a cup final, a European cup final that was scored against Arsenal 30 seconds before the end of extra time, which meant that Arsenal lost and the goalkeeper wasn't going to be able to, you know, it was just traumatic. And, but it's pure sports, but it's very poignant. The right, it, it really has less to do, it's about a lot of things. Yeah. Definitely, sure. the whole sure. piece is Absolutely. about a lot of things. Um, a lot of different layers and levels. And yeah, yeah. A lot of different hairs running throughout the... Right, the, right, right. Um, well, at this point, I just want to see if anybody, if you guys have any questions that you want to throw to anybody. Lay it on us. Um, I have a couple questions. Unfortunately, I generally have a couple questions. <laughs> so I have one for you and then one for Joe. What's your next project? I can't tell you. No. Um, no. Uh, um, I, I don't, um, I have um, some stories that I've, maybe it might be the Mallorca story. Um, go back and talk to those folks again. I don't really know who would take that story, but um, uh, it's got a lot of sort of narrative juiciness to it and um, might be a good one. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of, I'm secretive about my process, I, which is not to say that I don't like to talk about it, um, uh, but I would just say, you know, there's certain things that I, I, you know, I'm really excited about that I just don't like to talk about until I'm sure that I know what I'm going to do with them. But that would be one. You know, you just got us very interested. <laughs> yeah, especially this guy. I understand it. That's fine. Yeah, I'm sorry to be so coy about that, but it's apparently a theme. <laughs> um, just two quick questions for you, Joe. One, where did you get the idea here about the tapes? Two, how did you mic that interview that we heard? Because it was seamlessly miked um, between you and the guy who was annoying. Oh, no, no, I was, yeah, I was holding Yeah, so just two questions, how you found the tapes, how you heard about them. Well, and it was also, quick, I mean, the, the miking was just pretty easy, we just made sure that the three of us were So it wasn't together. moving, so it wasn't, they weren't each no, mic no, one separately. No, no, one microphone just, um, but the, do you wanna, maybe Samara can, can address the question of um, finding the story and finding the tape. Um, well, it's really just we were. We do, were actually, do you have a microphone out there, or do, does it matter? Oh, um, that's okay. Okay. Um, we were actually working on a different story, and I was talking to a source. I mean, I guess this often happens. Um, I was talking to a source about a different story, and he mentioned, "Well, if you're interested in Mississippi, you know, there's this crazy archive tape that you should know about." Crazy archive tape. And contacted the archive, and when we heard it, we. We're pretty sure we wanted to do the story. At Radio Diaries, we are archival tape geeks, yeah. and um, and so yeah, that the discovery of this. I mean, it's it's 
and actually we're doing a podcast this week that is sort of the backstory of this tape, but it's fascinating, just the story of the tape itself is really fascinating, because um, it just, this guy just kept it for 50 years, and if you know anything about archival tape, you know that 1951, this is period where very little archival tape exists, really, because you know, there's a lot from newsreel times and then after the 60s when there are portable recorders, but he just happened to have what was then a very new, new gear, this portable tape recorder, and happened to be in Mississippi and put the microphone up to the speaker and then kept it. So it's really kind of a fluke of, of history that this very strange thing, I mean, it was essentially a radio broadcast of a public execution. It wasn't on the scene. It was happening in the courthouse, but and 300 people had gathered in front of the courthouse steps. So you know, it's really the only recording of what is essentially a public execution. And it's, if, when you hear the whole thing, which, um, it's just very dry play by play and very kind of remarkable for, the, for its kind of lack of emotion. I should also just say that all these pieces can be heard in their entirety in the freestyle listening room, which is upstairs. And you can go anytime that you have free time and um, go and listen to any of them. Go ahead. At what point, and this is for each of you, but in recording and, and producing, do you decide what's going to be the scope and length, or did you decide what was going to be the scope and length of these pieces? And I wonder if that has something to do with where you're thinking that they will be placed eventually, and when that comes in the process. Like your piece could have been like one-time audio postcard, or, or you know, and you decided that it would be something you'd go back several times and think it. Uh, I, I mean, when I started it, I knew that I wanted to scrap for every, you know, second of time on the air. And there were a couple of points where I had opportunities to go with a shorter piece. And I decided to say, well, I'm going to keep looking because I want, I know I want a certain stretchiness to the piece. I wanted it to kind of spool out more slowly. And I just knew that, that it would be compressed into a very different kind of feeling, you know. Um, so uh, I usually go in with ears open and I, I try not to think about length, even though when you're doing network stories, you know, un unless you're Joe Richmond or a handful of other people, you don't get a lot of 22 minute opportunities. So, um, but still I go in, you know, looking, looking for every juicy little tidbit and don't think about length when I'm in the field. Cause you know, you never know where the opportunities, you know, they say roll tape, keep rolling tape and, um, and just follow your, you know, your instincts and, you know, figure out the story later. That said, I'm also editing in my head and going, okay, that was good, or I, that might be useful, or um, this might be a, an element or a node or a whole thread through the piece. So a little bit of editorial mind, but mostly just sort of story following mind. And then when you start talking to your editor, they let you know, look, I can give you six minutes. I can give you four minutes. Or this isn't more than a three-minute piece, and then you have to start getting practical then. Did you know you'd go back more than once? Um, yeah, once I came out, I, I thought about what I had and I thought about what I wanted for the piece and where, you know, once you go in once, you know, if you have that luxury to go back, you know kind of what the scope of the story is and what pieces you have and you don't have. So, yeah, as soon as I came out, I said, I got to go back there and get a little bit more. Uh, I mean, you know, if we've got a big project like this one, a long project, it, we're just, uh, there's this natural constraint on all things considered that it has to be 22. 23 minutes, and uh, I mean, it's too bad because there are there are just different feels and different rhythms for different lengths of pieces, and I think it's too bad there isn't a real. I mean, I think this could have easily been a 30-minute, but um, you know, there is something. I mean, I think every every piece uh, we've all had this experience, I'm sure, where those last 
three minutes, two minutes, one minute are just so brutal to take out. Um, and sometimes I'm thankful for the, that I have to, um, because as hard as it is, that is kind of one standard that, you know, if I didn't have to take out some really hard cuts at the end, I would be worried about the piece. But um, so it's just always, it always is what it is. Adam? Uh, well, this was a commission for a slot. That I, it was a half-hour slot. It was for a Saturday morning BBC Radio 4 slot in which they want some degree of entertainment or humour or sideways look at something that has also got deeper levels. So it was perfect material for that. And my only thing was I wanted to go as deep as I possibly could. And it got quite philosophical about three quarters of the way in before it came around to sport again. So I just went as deep as I possibly could. Really. Yeah, Eric. Uh, how, how much time do you spend making this? This is a program that made itself. Um, <laughs> he didn't even touch the dials. It, just, <laughs> <laughs> it fell into place. Uh, it was one interview down, one, the football recording in Brighton in the south of England with Hardy. That's about an hour from London. Uh, it was one big interview in the studio in London, uh, the ballad recording. It was, I had to go to Suffolk, which took me all of half a day to interview the report, the, the Times chap in his home. And the rest is archive and music from the music library and a very short script record. And everything suggested itself. One thing led to another. And How long did the mix take? <sighs> Because it's less really than lush. Many. Less than one? Sorry. I said it's really lush. Yeah, that's what I like to do. Yeah. I, I, um, lush, I like. <laughs> um, so less than a lot of mixes. Less than a lot of mixes? Yeah, I mix. I'm, I have programs I work on at home, yeah. so I can spend all. Uh, there's no waste of time. You right. can book, book things or travel to, to do mm -hmm. things. So I, less, I, I can't remember. Yeah, that's okay. Were there other questions? Yeah. Uh, Joe, how did you fund this project? That's a good question. Um, well, I, it's funny because we, uh, I don't know, um, we did get some funding more recently, but uh, at this, the time we were working on this project, we were sort of unfunded, actually. We were at a, we were at a bleak, dark period um, in our organization. Um, so, yeah, well, this is sort of unfun. We're just kind of scraping stuff together. There's no real answer, but, um, but we have gotten some funding since then from MacArthur and NEH um, for, for future projects over the next few years. Did, either, did it occur to anybody, well, I mean, you guys had shows you were working on and you had a slot that you had to fill, but Joe, did it occur to you to, um, to say, oh, this is, I've got like this other element of this story, and if I put it in, maybe it could be a sound print or this American Life, or did you ever think about, I mean, were you commissioned to doing it for ATC, or did, was, did you think about doing it in a longer form? Uh, we did actually think about um, if it could be a This American Life hour at some mm -hmm. point. But there's something, um, uh, yeah, I don't, most of our stuff goes to all things considered, and we've worked with This American Life in other places too, but um, this just, I don't know, it felt like, there's something about sometimes when it's in the context of all this other news stuff, mm -hmm. and Makes you it go to something so different, more? that I really, I like that. I like when it's not just, I mean, it's a great audience, but it's also that it's in the middle of the news from Iraq and wherever else, and you just, you, you know, the stuff is paying attention 
to each other. Yeah. So. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. This is um, also a question for Joe, but in regards to what Bridget was saying about first entering Mississippi and sort of you having this vision in your mind of what you wanted her to say and how it should sound, um, do you, does that come naturally to you? Do you have tips on how Ma to Making people say what I want them to say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess pushing the person you're working with, getting what you think is required but not, you know, them off, I guess. Uh, no, no, I hate, I hate it. Um, I, but it just, it's, it's just really helpful to have an idea of what you're looking for, and then when you, then you know you don't have it. I mean, I would say Bridget, getting back to that question you asked earlier. I mean, Bridget was sort of a reluctant star, <laughs> I would say, which is a really good quality as a radio narrator, really, because it's sort of like, come on, come on, and that, um, and that's, that was a good quality, and I. No, I think that that stuff was was not that big a deal. It just meant that I was really annoying a lot of the time, <laughs> which is fine. Um, I think the other journalistically, we had a more interesting issue, which was, you know, although Bridget went into the story feeling in her gut that her grandfather was innocent, and for the purpose of the story, we needed it to be a discovery and a figuring out and a and a, you know, and so that was a struggle to really keep you open enough and to be an investigator. And so that, that was sort of the, some of the tension in the story, too. Go ahead. Uh, this is a question for Bridget. I wonder what was surprising about working with radio producers for you. Like, did, what did you, what, was there anything that surprised you in the process about how it happens? Just the coming together of the project? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, because you've been thinking about this for a while, right? And then then all of a sudden there's other people thinking about it with you and, um, and also pointing mics in all those places. I just wondered what was surprising about that. How much detail goes into the project it was more surprising. Um, I thought when I worked with the radio, they were just going to take me and let me say what I had to say and, you know, but a lot of detail. <laughs> Also, you were thinking about it for a book originally, right? Yes, originally I was thinking about, okay, I'll write a story about it. Um, my grandfather, and actually I was doing it for a family reunion. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was going to go this deep into Go national? It. Yeah. <laughs> As I say to my um, auntie on part of the story, I think I've opened up a can of worms. <laughs> so yeah. I was actually just trying to be real moderate about it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was the other stuff that I missed. There were some great conversations with your aunt that uh, we could have done a whole half hour with her. Oh. But, uh, yeah. um, what was your question? Uh, yeah. I, I was interested in the archival aspect of um, two of the pieces. And I just was wondering, um, for the, the three pieces and the four producers, is there a chance that you would make your outtakes available for the public in a sort of archival setting for future producers to discover? Do you feel like you know, the interviews that you've done should be part of a larger public archive in the way that the archives were available for your use? You're talking like the interviews? And yeah, the just all the, all, the, all the extra tape. Good question. Um, we have, we did this uh, long 
series in, back in 2004 on the history of apartheid and Mandela, called Mandela in Audio History, and we did an insane amount of interviews and archival. So that actually has all been put into archives, different places. I think for particular projects, that's a really good thing. This is, you know, I don't know. This is a little bit more of a different project, um, but certainly the, the archival tape itself of the execution is available. It's on our website, and now it's available a few other places as well. So that is available to people. Yeah. So I've done a bunch of documentaries, and what's really difficult for me is figuring out structure. And as I told you in the local radio uh, presentation, uh, Steve, is that his name? Dan. Dan, Dan right. as I was saying, uh, was talking about getting advice from you on how you approach how to do this. And I'm wondering how you what is the mindset of structure generally, the basics, when you're approaching any of your pieces? What, how do you think of them? The structure? I will only say, I want, structure is the part that kills me. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I hate so it. It makes me, it's the, it's, I mean, there's no answer. I just know that for me it's the hardest. I, I think some people have a really good gut instinct for structure and they do it. And it's, once I, once I had the structure, then everything else is, is just But do you wonderful. have a certain, like what Pete said that you had said is that it was, you go, you want a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a discovery. Maybe he was making that up, I don't know, but do you think of these pieces in a certain way? You want a beginning, a middle, and the end, definitely. <laughs> Figuring out what's the beginning, the middle, and the end <laughs> is then another step. Um, Adam, did you, you heard? Yeah, I, I like working with clusters of ideas or clustering or taking one idea and a cluster of bits of material form around that idea and that will sit here in the edit and then there'll be another idea whether it might be about there's a in this program, there's one about the dangers of being a goalkeeper, the physical dangers, and so there's lots of little ideas that work there, so you cluster them together, and maybe somebody says something at the end of one cluster, you think, oh, I can hook that onto the beginning of that cluster. So there's a very organic, and that's very audio-led. It's never pre... Uh, it's led by what recordings I am, and I agree, I take lots and lots, I keep the mic running all the time, the tape running, and I, uh, I just... I just hear somebody says something and I think either because it's directly related or ah somebody else said something which would be ironic next to that or, or, or be against it somehow and then I just I'll just put those bits of audio together and then so, so and clusters join up but then there's also there's got to be a development there's got to be a narrative arc if you like um, this one was just starting with sport and getting deeper and deeper and deeper and coming back to sport but and those, when you say clusters yeah. I think Right. Ah. Do you mean themes? Issues? Th I, I, themes, definitely. Yes, I want I, I, to get a bit pretentious. I try and find some kind of integrity, whatever the program is, like a theme that even almost an academic theme that you can interrogate. You don't make the program academic, but there is a theme that you want, or a subplot as well, that you want to develop. But that's different. The clusters are just what people happen to say. Somebody said, it's painful being a goalkeeper because you get your teeth kicked out half the time. You think, okay, well, a little section of people talking about being hurt as a goalkeeper. Yeah, that's and there was some archival tape of somebody breaking their neck, basically, on the, yeah, on the soccer field. Yeah. So Scott Carrier said something, I don't know if any of you were there yesterday, but he said something about, he thinks about going from 
rock to rock to rock. You know, you oh, okay. go to rock and you get purchased until it's done, oh, okay. and then you go to another. And I think that yeah, there is something about building stories. We deal with scenes a lot. We kind of build with scenes, but or ideas or whatever it is. But I like that idea of like you're there long enough, you move on long. You know. And yeah. some, sometimes the purchase is, um, is about creating an opportunity for music to happen in the piece, the sure. dancing of voices. Sometimes it's about a particular piece of tape you want in, and sometimes it has to do with the narrative you're constructing. And I mean, I think that there's no one way in and out of these stories. Sure. There's like zillions, and you, you make decisions along the way that sort of force you down this sort of ever-narrowing path toward the, the thing you end up with. But at the end, you know, you could, you could reversion it. You can remix a piece a thousand ways. So. Um, yeah. Structure is it's tricky, but at the same time it, it's kind of it's the other side of it And you mentioned this is it's their power and limits they, you know when you're forced to kind of make choices You can you, you can then kind of give up some of the things that are extraneous and that's liberating too, so mm -hmm. sure. um, If you if you're not good at structure You definitely should have somebody who's willing to you know crack the whip and say no wait a minute What's this about or you know this might not be the best way to order it, you know um, There's nothing better than a good editor. Yeah for sure, because you're I, swimming it. You're swimming in the material by the time you get to the editorial process. So I was lucky with the uh, football game. Didn't know, obviously, didn't know what was going to happen, and we were ten minutes late, but it actually worked out okay, and we only stayed for the first half. I was very, very lucky because the poor goalkeeper let through four goals and was in tears. I mean, I say yeah, yeah. lucky <laughs> in radio producer terms. Not so good for the goalkeeper, but um, and I knew walking away from that that is going to run through the program. So that immediately gives you one element of your structure. And that American song wasn't, that was your, you put that in? Uh, which was, sorry? The, the last song. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got, again, it's given to you no, from above. Right. The yeah. goalkeeper says, <laughs> the DJ played this music straight to the library again, right. bung it in. And it ends in such a beautiful kind of right. lyrical twirl at the end. You think, that's the end of the program. I mean, quite often I will hear a phrase or a piece of music way early on and think, that's, that's what's going to end the program, yeah. or that's what's going to start the program. I like structure. I will say, um, well, also, I, you know, uh, Dan Collison, who does um, long, follows people for long periods of time, talked about at one point um, that he creates scenes. After he comes home from recording something, he'll build a scene because he doesn't, he, you know, it could be a year and a half before he puts a piece on the air. And he'll construct a scene. And then he'll, at the end, he'll have all these scenes. And then his job is a lot easier to put them all together. That's a, another way. I mean, it's the same thing that these guys have been saying. And we have to wrap it up because everybody wants lunch. Um, I don't know if you want to come and talk to people afterwards. But I just want to remind everybody that tonight is the award ceremony. You'll find out who won what. Again, these stories can all be heard in their entirety in the um, freestyle listening room upstairs. Thank you, Jason, for, um, for engineering. And uh, thank you to all our fantastic producers.